The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Legally, though, I just, I just, he's not going to comply. It's going to be a drawn out process. There's probably going to be some legitimately interesting questions about you know, subpoenaing a former president that aren't actually trivial. Um, There's no way, I think, that anything is going to get resolved until not just the election, but the new Congress. And unless the Democrats eke out a House victory, which, you know, they might, um, but they probably won't, at least according to 538 uh, and and most pollsters, Speaker of the House McCarthy is going to withdraw that subpoena on day one. So again, I'm not saying it was a bad call to issue the subpoena, but I I just, no one should expect that we're going to get Donald Trump in the hot seat testifying under oath anytime soon. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 14th, 2022. It was the final, and this time I mean the final, day of hearings for the January 6th Select Committee. It turned out to be a bit of a barn burner, a lot of new information about Donald Trump's state of mind, about the Secret Service, about people with weapons threatening violence. To chew it all over, we got the gang together on a Twitter space in front of a live audience yesterday afternoon. Quinta Jurassic. Alan Rosenstein, Molly Reynolds, all of them senior editors at Lawfare, to talk through what we learned yesterday, what the subpoena of Donald Trump is going to mean, what the effects on the midterm elections are likely to be, and how the committee has done given the constraints it faced. It's the Lawfare podcast, October 14th, a January 6th hearing debrief. Quinta, then Alan, then Molly. What did we learn today? I completely agree, Ben. I was a little unclear whether this was going to be the equivalent of kind of a clips show, you know, uh, just telling us uh, material that the committee had already shown. But there was actually a fair amount of new material along with the committee sort of recapping what it had already shown. I think that the the biggest news for me, um, I'm not sure whether this is actually, uh, I don't think it changes our understanding of what happened on January 6th particularly, uh, but the committee showed about five minutes of footage of leaders in Congress huddled in what seems to be, you know, somewhere in the bowels of the Capitol discussing what to do, calling uh, the governor of Virginia for 
for help, calling Justice Department leadership for help, desperately trying to get somebody to come in and clear the rioters out of the Capitol. Uh, That footage, according to a journalist, was taken by Nancy Pelosi's daughter, who is a, a filmmaker. But it's something that we hadn't seen before, and I think it really brings home just how dire the situation was. It's it's pretty astonishing and really quite something for a finale. The committee also uh, flagged a lot of new material from the Secret Service that they have received since the last time that they held a hearing, um, including some pretty striking documentation that the Secret Service received tips and were aware of potential violence in the run-up to the six, including one tip that um, I don't have the exact language in front of me, but it's something along the lines of uh, describing potential violence. And then the tipster says, they're going to kill people. Please take this seriously. The material from the Secret Service also documents how uh, the Secret Service were tracking Trump's movements on the day of the six, that uh, they knew that he was angry when he was not taken to the Capitol as he'd requested, and that they were actually planning to take him to the Capitol for, I think, a period of about 30 minutes after he returned to the White House from his speech on the ellipse. And this is, again, really just underlining the fact that, you know, Trump was not, you know, casually tossing off this idea of we're going to march to the Capitol. It seems like this was a premeditated plan um, and he wanted to personally be there. That's just a quick overview. There, there is more information um, that is is new, but I think I'll I'll leave it there uh, for now. And I will say that I think the you know, the biggest piece of news and the thing that's probably going to grab all the headlines is, of course, the fact that at the very end of this hearing, uh, because it wasn't actually a hearing, it was technically a business meeting. Meeting, the committee voted unanimously to subpoena Donald Trump to get his testimony about what he had to do with January 6th. Now, the question of whether or not they will actually hear Trump's testimony, I think, is a, a very different question, uh, but it is a, a major step, and the committee kind of positioned that as the, the grand finale of sorts to the slate of hearings they've been conducting. So let's actually hold the subpoena for later in the discussion and focus for now on the facts, because the subpoena, I think, raises some issues of its own, mostly political. Alan, what do you think we learned today beyond what Quinta has said? Yeah, and I, I think Quinta you know, outlined the, the main points really well. I mean, maybe this is a bit flip, but I one thing that I learned is that Nancy Pelosi is a badass. Um, and just honestly, she was incredibly impressive. And obviously, the committee obviously selected clips, uh, you know, with that in mind. But it really just shows the the kind of courage under fire and the commitment at the time to continue the process so as not to to let the the kind of the the, the mob win. In terms of what we learned, I think zooming out, what we learned is that the committee really wants to and is potentially planning on setting a criminal referral to the Justice Department. That you know, or suggesting that Donald Trump or alleging that Donald Trump incited an insurrection against the 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 Capitol, and that not just the content of the speech, but the knowledge that Trump had about the uh, violent nature of the crowd, the fact that he ordered the magnetometers removed, something that we've known since the Cassidy Hutchinson hearing, the fact, and here I think there was some new information, the fact that he clearly intended and was planning and presumably ordered the Secret Service to to drive him to the Capitol uh, until he was ultimately talked out of that. These are things that actually go beyond just speech. These get into what one might call overt acts. 
uh, in a way that you know, even under the First Amendment's really stringent protections for political speech might actually create uh, space for uh, a prosecution of, of Donald Trump. I um, mean, you know, I do think that the committee hearing that had the Cassidy Hutchinson testimony was the real turning point. But I think uh, this hearing or today or this meeting emphasized that, extended it a little bit um, in, in ways that I think um, I'm, I'm sure Merrick Garland is, is, uh, is thinking about. Molly, what was your uh, first impression? Sure. So um, just to add to what both Quinta and Alan have said, I do think that the committee sort of went into this hearing walking a line between kind of wanting to both recap what we had already learned um, and seen in their previous hearings. You know, it's been, uh, I think, almost two months since the last hearing Folks may not have tuned in to all of the ones over the summer. So some element of what they wanted to do was remind people of kind of where the investigation is, but then also to present new information. And I think the two sort of big things for me, Quinta has already talked a little bit about the information from the Secret Service, um, the documents, emails, other kinds of um, communications that were discussed in this hearing. For me, that really reminded us and almost took us back to where a lot of this investigative work started 15 months or so ago um, with these questions about kind of intelligence failures um, on the part of any number of individuals and agencies and entities uh, in the run up to January 6th. So I think it reminded us, even if, you know, some of the details in those documents were new, but it certainly brought back to the fore the idea that there are, in addition to these questions about Trump's role and what Trump knew um, and what Trump did to incite the insurrection, also the idea that there are other people and other actors who have things to answer for here um, and that we don't want to forget about that. The other thing that I will say, and this ties into um, the footage of the congressional leadership that Quinta mentioned, this hearing also, I think, just reminded us of how exceptional this committee is and has been. The We did not know that that footage was coming. If I remember correctly, there is a little bit of footage, perhaps, of Majority Leader Schumer and uh, Minority Leader McConnell that was featured in one of the July hearings, but certainly nothing to the extent of what we saw today. We also, frankly, did not know until 12.55 today that they were converting this from a hearing to a business meeting. Um, that conversion is what allowed them to, uh, at the conclusion of the session, vote on the subpoena that um, I think we're going to talk more about. But they sort of held that really closely under wraps until, you know, literally five minutes before the hearing was going to start. And, you know, I was I was watching it um, with um, with Quinta and we both sort of noted at the top when um, Chairman Thompson mentioned that this was actually a business meeting and that the, that was positioning them to um, potentially take a vote at the conclusion of the session. Again, it just reminds us that um, this committee has operated um, in ways that we just do not see and do not frankly expect of entities uh, in the in the House of Representatives. And I think that, um, as I've argued before, both myself and, and with Quinta in writing, that's part of what has made it as effective as it's been. All right. So I want to uh, focus in a little bit on the orienting point of the committee's hearing, uh, Alan. The notional framework of this hearing was uh, zooming in on Donald Trump's state of mind uh, from early on through the 
insurrection. Uh, let's leave aside the sort of metaphysical questions of whether it's possible to gain a sense of Donald Trump's state of mind uh, or not. I assume the reason that they wanted to do this is that all of the crimes that are possibly indictable here have significant scienter requirements, specifically uh, some degree of criminal intent or willfulness. Or uh, so you're, if you're trying to sort of persuade the public and to a lesser extent, I suppose, the Justice Department that this is criminal behavior, not just a bad thing. You know, you do have to address the scienter aspects of it. Uh, how do you think they did? Uh, and do you think this is likely to be influential in how either prosecutors or the public thinks about the question? Yeah. So, so let me start with how they did. I think they did well, and I think they established the intent of, that Donald Trump had. And, and again, there are some technical questions about whether the intent has to be specifically intending to create violence, or is it enough that Donald Trump was simply aware of and was deliberately and willfully indifferent to the possibility of violence? Um, I think that is certainly beyond belief at this point, or beyond doubt at this point. I think intent is relevant in two ways, and in both of which the committee did a good job with. One, intent is relevant in the sense that what is it that Donald Trump was trying to do? What was behind his mind when he gave that speech, right? Um, and uh, the fact, for example, that he knew that he had lost the fact that he knew that the crowd was armed. All of those things go to his state of mind when he was giving that speech, um, making it pretty clear that he was not just giving a speech because he wanted to give a political speech, but that you know there were other considerations uh, going on, shall we say. But in addition, um, intent is also relevant insofar as the additional acts that he took, the ones that went beyond the speech, the order to remove the mags, the, uh, the fight that he had in the, um, uh, with a Secret Service officer, um, and it's notable that uh, the committee now having had you know, several months to process Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony is doubling down uh, on those allegations, which suggests that they continue to be very confident in that. And then the additional thing that we learned about him really wanting to go to the Capitol and having to be dissuaded kind of at the last minute to do that, um, that establishes intent another way, uh, which is to say that he wasn't just talking, right, with a bad intent. He was willing to actually take some additional acts to facilitate his plan, his scheme to overturn the election, um, you know, a scheme that he, he had even before the election happened. And that's another important feature. And, and the reason is because you know, if you just look at the content of the speech, there are some very bad parts, right, where he says a bunch of falsehood and he talks about the importance of fighting and all of that. But there are also parts where he talks about go peaceably and all that sort of stuff. And so if you look at just the speech itself, there's an argument that you can make, and the First Amendment does provide a lot of protections for speech, there's an argument you can make that it was an ambiguous at worst about violence. And I think what the committee is doing is it's showing that, um, you know, even if the speech was maybe ambiguous at the end of the day, there are all these other factors that make it clear beyond a reasonable doubt, because that of course would be the standard in a criminal case, that Donald Trump had the bad intent, right? Both because of what he was told and also maybe even more importantly, because of what he did. And I think the committee did a really, really good job uh, on, on that. Now, Will this be influential for the Department of Justice? I mean, again, it, that depends on what the Department of Justice itself already knows. I suspect that they know a lot of this stuff already, though there has been some indication in the past that 
the committee might know some stuff that DOJ doesn't know. So it might be influential in, in that case. I assume that you know the prosecutors at DOJ who are thinking about this have gamed this all out. Um, have been thinking about this for a while, and you know we will find out some one one thing or the other after the midterms. As to whether or not will it will affect the public's perception, I don't know. I, you know my 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 cynical and pessimistic answer is that this is all baked in, unfortunately, and people have made up their minds. It should, I think, change the public's opinion, um, but whether it does, I don't know. I'm less I'm less optimistic about that. Molly, what did you make of the the showing with respect? So you're you're the the one of us who is, I suppose, least legal, though uh, you're about as much of a lawyer formally as either Quinta or I. But you're the you're much the political scientist. What did you make of the showing of regarding Trump's state of mind? Was that of value from your point of view, or was that the kind of thing where they seem to be, you know? arguing a point that to a uh, to a person who doesn't think about elements of offenses is so obvious as to be unimportant. So I think what I'd say is it's from the perspective of uh, people who might be watching the hearing, um, might be um, reading coverage of the hearing, sort of less about the sort of Trump's state of mind specifically, and more about this general notion of trying to remind people that, oh, yes, Donald Trump himself was at the center of this. It doesn't, I don't think it's as necessary for the average person to understand some of the the details and specifics of the the consequences of his state of mind that Alan was just um, describing. But I think what the the focus on Trump and on his state of mind really did is, again, elevated him as the central actor uh, in this story from the perspective of the committee, which I think does have um, consequences, again, as we um, sort of go more acutely into the into the midterms in a couple of weeks. We know that, or I guess my read of the midterms is that January 6th has not been playing a particularly large role so far. So perhaps um, having this as material for, um, for folks to talk about um, and get sort of integrated into the, the coverage again, um, that may be part of what the, the motivating um, factor for doing that is, in addition to kind of all of the things that Alan outlined as the committee, I think, does and is thinking ahead to the prospect of, um, of criminal referrals. You know, the committee was, um, Vice Chair Cheney was very careful and clear to say that the committee's role is not to make prosecution decisions. Indeed, one of its biggest roles is to recommend reforms to prevent this um, or something like this from ever happening again. And I think that's what we'll see in the final report, which after the hearing today, Mr. Baskin said we should expect in sort of late November or early December, um, so decidedly after the election. But I do think that the committee has taken seriously its evidence gathering role and knows that it's, you know, quite likely that it won't exist um, in the in the new Congress. And so, you know, wanting there to be more fruits of its labor than just what it's able to do in the in the closing months of the year. All right. So before we go to the politics and the next month and how this interacts with that, I want to focus, Quinta, on a matter that you raised in passing earlier, which is the revelations of the Secret Service emails that the uh, FBI uh, really did have a little bit more of a heads up about 
some stuff, at least than you would think from, you know, from their prior testimony in which basically the director and the deputy director or uh, assistant director for terrorism, uh, you know, basically said, hey, we had this one thing from Norfolk, but that was about it. I was, I have to say, completely unsurprised to find out that 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 there was at least a bit more than that. I'm interested in your reaction. First of all, what did we learn? And secondly, uh, what do you make of it? And why does Congress seem so uninterested in the FBI's institutional performance here? So what we learned was that there were tips that were sent in to the Secret Service and the FBI and that the FBI shared some information with the Secret Service, so they were aware of it, at least to the extent that they were sharing it with another intelligence or law enforcement agency, about the potential for violence um, on January 6th. Not just, you know, in one instance, but it seems like there were a lot of these tips. There were tips specifically about the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, the two extremist organizations whose members have been indicted for seditious conspiracy for their role in beginning the violence on the 6th, um, sort of they were some of the groups that were most intimately involved in breaking into the Capitol. It seems like, you know, that the intelligence agencies have have said uh, to Congress that, you know, we, we didn't know that this was going to happen ahead of time. There wasn't any indication. Um, and you and I have both written, Ben, about how uh, it just seems like that is simply not credible. You know, that the fact that there was going to be potential violence was obvious to anybody who had an internet connection. And so the the fact that these agencies are able to kind of say, well, we couldn't possibly have known, always seemed uh, not particularly credible and I think is now even less credible now that we know that, you know, that there is documentation that they were uh, on some level aware um, that things that could be going down that were really, really bad. Among the documentation are emails from secrets or communications among Secret Service agents about arresting people in D.C. with weaponry um, on the, the morning of the 6th, on the evening before. Uh, one agent had a very odd phrase saying that th things might get sporty after dark. So I don't know what that means, but it doesn't sound good. I do think that, you know, it is not surprising, as you say, but it's consistent with our impression that these agencies perhaps did really have a sense of what was going on and just didn't take any action. But it is still just, you know, concerning in that it is one more demonstration of how intelligence and law enforcement agencies just did not seem to take this particularly seriously. As to the question of why Congress doesn't care, I mean, I think that, you know, Ray, Christopher Ray, the director of the FBI, has been really extraordinarily effective in kind of uh, flying under the radar here. Um, he had, he testified in a few early hearings immediately after January 6th, kind of suggesting, oh, we didn't, you know, have authority to look at social media posts. I've written on Lawfare about why I think that's uh, at, at the the best, uh, extremely misleading. But, you know, overall, Congress, I think, has been very focused on 
Trump's personal wrongdoing. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that in the House, uh, this investigation was really consolidated with the committee and the committee seems to have chosen to focus its efforts on Trump's personal role rather than the failures of law enforcement. I mean, they they have, you know, a really broad remit, a really limited amount of time. And so I understand why they've made that choice. But I do think it means that, you know, committees like the Judiciary Committee, uh, the Intelligence Committee have kind of not been as active as I might want to see in really pursuing uh, and running down this question of why these agencies failed so badly. And that's not just a question of, you know, holding people, you know, figuring out who to blame for bad things that happened in the past. It's a question of avoiding this in the future, because as uh, Liz Cheney emphasized at today's hearing, you know, this is not a danger that is in the past. This is very much something that is an ongoing threat of violence in future elections. And so the fact that our law enforcement and intelligence agencies at the federal level just fell down on their face so completely does not fill me with confidence that they might be able to see another January 6th coming. Yeah, Molly, I want to ask you about that because I, you know, you covered uh, in great detail the machinations leading up to the creation of this committee and the, the congressional inability to get together a national commission, a la the 9-11 commission model. And the 9-11 commission was very not focused on individual political accountability and very focused on institutional failures and correcting them. This committee has been single-mindedly focused on Donald Trump's personal political and, uh, you know, to some extent criminal responsibility uh, and has really let the FBI slide To what extent do you think that's influenced by the structure of the investigation that members of Congress are really going to focus on, you know, personal political accountability issues? And to what extent is it just because, you know, people made the sound judgment, hey, we have a year to get this done or 18 months to get this done. We don't have time to think about the FBI. We got to we got to get, you know, the big villain. We got to tell the single story of the big villain. I think it's a it's a combination of those two things. I as I have um, argued uh, from the from the beginning, time was not and has not been on uh, this committee's side. So choices they had to make choices about where they were uh, where they were going to go. I think it is clear that at least it's I think clear to me that part of kind of how they um, got Representative Cheney and Representative Kinzinger to kind of join the the committee and make um, this a bipartisan effort was by you know committing to uh, moving forward on a consensus driven basis and there does seem to be consensus across everyone on the committee that what they wanted to focus on was um, telling the story about President Trump's role uh, in the process. I also think it's a a reflection of the fact that you know this committee's comparative advantage, um, that is this committee's ability to do things that other congressional committees are not positioned to do, really was to kind of try and dig into the Trump specific pieces of the story. So 
we know that I mentioned this earlier, um, folks can read about this on Lawfare, can listen to um, an episode of the, the Lawfare podcast, The Aftermath, if you want to learn more about the kind of initial investigations in the House and the Senate before the creation of the Select Committee. But there was a there was a, a serious bipartisan investigation by two Senate committees, um, the Senate Rules Committee and the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee, that started down this road of looking at some of the intelligence failures, but they did not go, to my mind, nearly far enough. So I think there was also some sense that some of that work was done elsewhere and that other committees, perhaps on a bipartisan basis, could be positioned to do that work um, again in the future. And that given the opportunities that this committee, the select committee had, that where it really needed to go was on this question of Trump's responsibility. Yeah, and I just want to second Molly's plug for episode four of the Aftermath podcast uh, on Lawfare Presents, which really does give a sense of some actually really constructive bipartisan investigations in the months that immediately followed January 6th that everybody's forgotten about, but actually had some real impact and are really worth thinking about. All right, let's talk about the subpoena, the big news of the day. The big headline is going to be January 6th committee subpoenas Donald Trump. We had a little argument about this in the Slack channel insofar as we have arguments. Alan took the position that this was a nothing burger, uh, more theatrics than any but anything else after uh the reaction that you got, Alan, is that does that still your belief or uh, do you think this is an important development? So I, I, I think it's still probably legally a nothing burger, though I'm not sure if it is politically a nothing burger. I mean, I do think just as and maybe this is a shallow way of thinking about it, just as television, it was excellent. It was just a really impressively powerful way to end this hearing and the series of hearings with all of the members going, you know, I, I, I to the, to the, to the subpoena. And I do think, again, if, if the point is to make clear that, that Donald Trump remains under, you know, criminal investigation, civil investigation, now congressional investigation, you know, having a, a legally enforceable subpoena out there um, does that. And maybe on the margins, it has political benefit and Congress is a political body. So I'm fine with them using a subpoena that was otherwise valid if there's an, also a legitimate political objective to it. Legally, though, I just, I just, he's not going to comply. It's going to be a drawn out process. There's probably going to be some legitimately interesting questions about, you know, subpoenaing a former president that aren't actually trivial. Um, there's no way, I think, that anything is going to get resolved until not just the election, but the new Congress. And unless the Democrats eke out a House victory, which you know they might, um, but they probably won't, at least according to 538 uh, and, and most pollsters, Speaker of the House McCarthy is going to withdraw that subpoena on day one. So again, I'm not saying it was a bad call to issue the subpoena, but I, I just no one should expect that we're going to get Donald Trump in the hot seat testifying under oath anytime soon. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. 
They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web 
Data brokers hate delete me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. All right, Molly or Quinta, uh, in whatever order you guys choose, who wants to make the case that this is a bigger deal than Alan allows? I mean, I'm I'm happy to jump in, although I'm I'm very curious what Molly thinks. I mean, I think that the the thing to understand here is that we should not, just as we should not understand the value of the committee's work and the language of will this lead to a criminal indictment, which is something that that Liz Cheney emphasized and which I appreciated at today's hearing. You know, she was saying we're doing something different than the Justice Department is doing. I don't actually think that we should understand the value of subpoenaing Donald Trump only in terms of will it actually get Trump in front of the committee. I think it's a it's a symbolic measure. And that's not to underplay the value at all. I think I, in thinking this through, I was thinking about uh, the congressional scholar Josh Chaffetz's work on a, a, what he calls congressional overspeech. So that's like oversight, but but speech, essentially the sort of the value of these kinds of performances of oversight that Congress engages in, performances not as you know derogatory, but just as a description of, of the sort of value that you can get of Congress positioning itself, creating a a drama, creating a ruckus. And I do think that there is a real symbolic value in in having the committee, you know, be able to say we we voted on this, you know, in front of the American people. We stand for the proposition that Donald Trump should be held accountable and made to answer uh, for what he did. And that that has a real significance when it comes to how we understand the politics of of the account of, of holding Trump accountable, how we understand the separation of powers between the branches. That is valuable. And now, you know, members of the committee and, and the Democrats can go out there in the midterms and say, you know, if if you want to hold Trump accountable, vote for us. Now, will, will that sway anyone's votes? I have no idea. Um, but I do think it does have symbolic significance and it allows the committee to kind of say, you know, we we did everything that we could possibly have done. We pushed things as far as we could possibly have pushed. We left no stone unturned. And that matters, even if, as I suspect Alan is correct, Trump never actually shows up. I think the only thing that I would add is a sort of slightly different, perhaps sort of Occam's razor explanation for what else might be going on here, which is I think it's also possible, in addition to it, as um, Alan pointed out, sort of being good television, being a a compelling end to the clear narrative arc that this uh, committee has been building over the past several months. 
I think it's also the case that it may well just have taken until now for all of these people to come to agreement on the idea that this was a necessary step as part of their work as um, an entity. I was talking before about the degree that this committee appears to really have been driven by wanting to build consensus, wanting to do things on a unanimous basis, want to send clear and unambiguous signals that this is where kind of this group of people on a bipartisan basis had landed on various questions related to the investigation. It would not surprise me if it took until some time between when they had their last hearing and when they had their hearing today for them to all agree that subpoenaing Trump was the right thing to do in the context of what they have been up to. And yes, I think Alan and Quinter are both right that we should not expect, you know, Donald Trump to walk into the O'Neill House office building and sit in that little room that we've seen on all of the videos um, sometime next week. But I think we also just need to understand the timing of this choice in this broader context of how we've seen the committee work. Yeah, so I want to add a couple things to this. First of all, I very much agree with Molly that uh, one factor here may be that the committee seems to effectively work by consensus. Uh, Molly, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think they've had a single vote that isn't unanimous. Is that right? That's certainly uh, my recollection. You know, they haven't taken that many votes. Um, they voted on contempt citations um, towards the end of last year. But it's, again, it's pretty telling that they have operated on a, a real unanimous consensus basis. And so when you operate on a consensus basis, one person's anxieties get a lot of deference and uh, because you don't want that, you know, you really don't want that vote that's you know, five Democrats or and two Republicans, uh, you know, versus two Republicans. And so whatever the holdup on this was, I, I very much agree with Molly that, you know, part of the explanation for this may be that there were one or two or three or four people who wanted to, you know, who held out for all kinds of uh, accommodations or whatever to see if they could get this done by other means. I also think this is a much bigger deal, honestly, than others on this call do. And I, I'll tell you why. So first of all, I agree with Quinta very much that it sets up a situation in which you can talk to voters very directly about what happens if the House flips. If the House flips, there is no political accountability for Donald Trump because this will be withdrawn. And I think that's a powerful argument that elevates the stakes and will let certain people talk about this. If you vote for my opponent, this subpoena will be gone. The second thing is I am less convinced than Alan that it's going to take months and months and months to resolve this because I think Donald Trump is going to refuse to comply with this subpoena very quickly and that could set up a relatively quick contempt vote and referral to the Justice Department, which does not lapse. You know, that's a, that then becomes a completed act that does not act, lapse with the end of the Congress. And so I think this could have a much more uh, consequential effect and a longer tail than just a symbolic gesture. Quinta, you were you're clamoring to get in. 
Yeah, I'm actually curious what you think about this, Ben, because while while trying to game this out, I was wondering about the odds that the Justice Department would actually pursue uh, contempt prosecution here. So as Alan says, I mean, I I think it is entirely possible that Trump could raise not crazy legal questions about uh, the separation of powers issues raised by Congress subpoenaing a former president about actions that he took while he was the president. I, I don't necessarily, I wouldn't agree with those arguments, but he can certainly raise them. And obviously the Justice Department has its own equities to protect in terms of separation of powers. And I, th- I think we've arguably seen that in the department's decision not to pursue a prosecution of Mark Meadows for his own refusal to comply with a subpoena from the January 6th committee. So is this a situation where you think the department might really go ahead with a contempt of Congress prosecution? So the Department of Justice is a very cautious animal on separation of powers issues. So I would never say, oh yeah, they're going to go full steam ahead. That said, the issues with respect to Mark Meadows are different from the issues with respect to Donald Trump. Mark Meadows, there is this doctrine uh, that the Justice Department has promulgated over the years of testimonial immunity for, you know, the immediate staff of the president. And there is an, you know, an idea of executive privilege for those people. With respect to Donald Trump, you may be calling him for reasons that are not, you know, to find out what he was, what advice he was getting from Mark Meadows, right? You may want to ask him, were you watching TV and cackling uh, for four hours while the Capitol was being ransacked? I don't know of any privilege that would cover that. And so I think the question might be so unformed and so different from anything they've constructed before that some of the same OLC, a lot of the same OLC doctrine that would prevent Uh, that would hold them back on other stuff uh, doesn't necessarily hold them back on this simply because it's less well-defined. That said, from the committee's point of view, I'm not sure it matters whether the Justice Department would go forward because the point in sending it would be, hey, we are marking the territory that says you cannot just defy our subpoena. And they, I mean, you may have privileges, you can come up and assert the fifth, but they've referred everybody else who has defied their subpoena. So I wouldn't be wholly surprised. I I, I haven't thought through the question of what the Justice Department, how they would look at it. But if you're the committee, why not send that referral within the next month? It's not going to take Donald Trump, Trump a month to say, you know, I'm going to tear, you know, I'm going to take this subpoena and, and uh, rip it to shreds and flush it down the toilet. Alan, do you think I'm, do you think I'm being overly ebullient on behalf of the committee? I I do, but honestly, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I just, we don't know exactly how Trump is going to respond. We don't exactly know what the committee is going to do. We don't exactly know what DOJ's positions are going to be. So because of that, the question is, well, was there a big downside to issuing the subpoena? And I think the answer is no. There was there were many good reasons. They were all overdetermined to issue it. But I remain, I, I just, I remain very skeptical that um, unless the Democrats keep the House, you know, next month, that there's there's any chance that that Trump will actually be forced to testify. 
Yeah, I think that's that's almost certainly right. I I do think the chances that something else could happen as a result of the subpoena are non-trivial. And I will also say, you know, if you if you ta- however seriously one takes 538, they give the Democrats about a 30% chance of retaining the House, which means that you have, even under Allen's more cautious formulation than mine, a 30% chance that this turns into something real, which is not trivial. All right. I want to ask Quinta about the dog that didn't bark, and her name is Ginny Thomas. There was a lot of run-up in this hearing to the idea that we were going to learn about Ginny Thomas's role uh, her contacts with John Eastman, etc., and uh, we learned not a thing about what happened in her deposition. What do you make of that? I have to say, I am not hugely surprised that Ginny Thomas did not make an appearance. I guess there, there, <laughs> it would have been very dramatic if she did, given that uh, literally while the hearing was was ongoing, uh, we got the news that the Supreme Court had rejected uh, Trump's effort to, to to block the Justice Department's ability to uh, take certain actions in the, in the Mar-a-Lago case, and where, of course, uh, Justice Thomas presumably cast a vote. But that said, I mean, we, we learned that uh, the committee did not uh, record Ginny Thomas's deposition on video, um, which has been the case with many, I'm, I'm not sure about most, but uh, many of the the testimony that it's heard, you know, that we've, we've seen this video uh, be played. And I think it's been really powerful to be able to actually watch the witnesses speak in their own words. I don't know why uh, Thomas's meeting with the committee was not videotaped. I wouldn't be surprised if the answer was that they really wanted to get her in and they gave up on the videotaping as a condition of her showing up in the first place. Precisely because of that, I think once I learned that there wasn't going to be any video, I was really wondering whether you know, that that would be enough to sort of make them not want to put her testimony on the table just because it, it makes it a little less powerful if she's not saying it in her own words. You know, there's there's always, of course, the, the possibility that, you know, you could be accused of misrepresenting something she said or something like that. Um, I think that's worth keeping in mind. It's also just possible that, you know, maybe she didn't have much to say or maybe the things that she did have to say didn't speak directly to what she what the the sort of the story that the committee was trying to tell in this hearing now that doesn't mean that we're never going to learn what happened um, in that conversation with the committee uh, the committee is uh, releasing a report as Molly mentioned I, Jamie Raskin has said they're planning to get it out at the end of this year and so we we may learn uh, more details about that later on uh, but for now I, I can't say I was shocked that she did not make an appearance. Just to kind of underscore a couple things that Quinta said. So one, I think it's helpful to remind people on this question of like, why wasn't the um, interview videotaped? Um, that often when folks appear before a committee like this, there are negotiations about the conditions of their appearance. And so, you know, not all interviews are um, are created equal. And then I think Quinta's speculation about the possibility that whatever um, Jenny Thomas said was not as germane to the story that they were really trying 
trying to tell in this in this hearing. That would make a lot of sense to me. And I do just want to say that one of the other things that happened in this hearing is the committee did start to more explicitly gesture at what they intend to put in that final report that will come out. There was some discussion of, you know, there'll be more review of those Secret Service documents that they already have, which I think are a relatively new acquisition for the committee. I think they got them relatively recently. There'll be more on those. And so I, I do think that that was another development today was to see the committee start to like even in vague terms sketch out the boundaries of what we're likely to see in a big report that comes out before the end of the year. All right. So two questions from Genevieve de la Ferra, which I'm going to consolidate into one. Uh, do you think the revelations of Trump's premeditated denial of the election will have any effect on the midterms or on some of the election denier candidates? And will the committee's revelations about the election denial plan change how news outlets report claims of election denial? Alan, you've already cast some shade at the idea that this is anything other than baked in. Do you think there's any probability of impact here? I don't, to be honest. Look, I really wish I did. Um, I think the main probability of impact is if DOJ brings a criminal case for incitement or insurrection or something like that, and this becomes one of the pieces of evidence that would be relevant to intent. Um, but absent that, I, I just worry that everyone kind of knew that Trump is a bullshit artist. Everyone knew that he's a bad faith actor. Or let me put it this way. The people that are, are willing to see the truth understand this. Um, and it's been, I think, pretty clear for some time that that he understood or should have understood uh, that he had lost the election. So, you know, I, 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 again, I'm skeptical that this will that this will move the political needle, but we'll see, I guess. Quinta, Molly, do either of you disagree with that? No, I think I think that's right. I do think that, you know, one, one thing to keep in mind is that I sort of doubt that it will change the way that news organizations report on these claims, these election denialist claims. But that's actually because the the mainstream press, I mean, I'm I'm mostly thinking of the sort of the, the big dailies, but I suppose it's true of cable too, with the exception of Fox, have become a lot better about calling out election lies when they see them. Um, you know, that, that you, you see them identified directly as lies. You see lots of clarifications that these accusations are baseless and sort of built on sand. Um, and so, you know, now I suppose uh, these outlets will be able to point to even more in debunking these claims. Uh, but generally speaking, we've come, I, I think we've, we've come fairly far since the, the sort of the early days of, of 2020 when, uh, Journalists were unfortunately taking these claims a little bit more on their face. That doesn't mean that there's not farther to go, of course, um, but I do think that's worth keeping in mind. All right. Uh, Kaylee, uh, you need to unmute yourself and the floor is yours. Thank you to everybody who's talking about this. Really, my question is, Congress is a co-equal branch of government. And so with the hearings, we have seen that they have not been able to get witnesses in, Mark Meadows, people declining to come in. And now, obviously, Trump will decline to come in. Since it's a co-equal branch of government, basically, we have members within subverting the operation of the government. And so, really, I would like somebody to comment on how you can get a branch of the government to enforce its own powers. So, 
you know, they referred to the DOJ on some of the, um, the obstruction and nothing has happened. All right. Thank, Thank you. you. Uh, that's a super question. It has Molly Reynolds's name written all over it, but I think Alan also has thoughts on it. So Molly, uh, why don't you get us started and Alan pick it up? Yeah, so this is a huge question. Um, it's not unique to the January 6th investigation. And I think the short answer is that Congress over time has willingly given away power to the executive branch. The executive branch has clawed power from Congress against its will. And now Congress is just um, institutionally poorly positioned to try to um, assert uh, power, particularly increasingly relying on the courts to do so. And so I think really some of the answer is that Congress needs to um, sort of develop more tools to stand up for itself. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of discussion about inherent contempt, which is the kind of situation where Congress holds people um, not literally in their own jail, but, um, you know, exercises its own um, its own muscle. And so I think we'll keep having um, these conversations. But I think really part of the answer is we just need a more muscular Congress. I'm not super optimistic, um, even as someone who loves Congress, uh, that we get there. But I'm curious um, to hear Alan's perspective as well. No, I agree entirely with uh, Molly's diagnosis. And I just want to put it in sort of broader historical and constitutional context. Whatever you think about the framers and whether they you know, were smart or not, or you know, wrote a good constitution or not, one thing that I think everyone agrees with is that they just did not take into account the effect of political parties when they designed the constitution. They didn't like them. They didn't want them. They thought they were unnecessary. And so when they designed the constitution in particular, you know, James Madison was one of the, the key framers. And when he thought about separation of powers, the way he thought about it was in terms of institutions. You'd have these different institutions and each of those, each of the members of those institutions would want to preserve their prerogatives. So if you were a senator, you would care about the powers of the Senate. And if you were a you know, president, you'd care about the powers of the presidency. And what, what happened almost immediately, actually, uh, is that you had the parties develop. And then uh, over time, and especially really, I think, since World War II, partisanship, not institutional separation, is what has really driven internal American politics and the separation of powers. And so if you are a Republican, what you care about you know, in, in Congress, what you care about is fundamentally not Congress's power. You care only about how Congress can at that moment help the Republican cause. And if, if there's a Democrat in the House, you will have a very strong, muscular view of your authorities. But if there's a Republican in the House, you will give away the farm. And the exact same is true for uh, uh, Democrats. And that's a very pessimistic, unfortunately, analysis, uh, because if it was that the president was you know, stealing power from Congress, that'd be one thing. But if Congress is giving up that power to the president when it is politically advantageous for it to do so, uh, there's no obvious remedy for that. All right. I want to say one word in defense of Congress in this context from both the premise of the question and from Molly and Allen's answer to it, which is that, you know, the 1-6 uh, committee has done remarkably well with compelling witnesses to testify. It has uh, heard from over a thousand witnesses. I think 10 of them have refused to testify, but most of those 10 have refused to testify on an entirely legitimate basis, which is the assertion of their Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination, which, by the way, you can do against the executive branch, too. The committee could have immunized them and compelled their testimony. They didn't. 
And there are three or four who have refused and actually defied the subpoena. That's a hell of a good ratio, particularly for a congressional committee. So I I agree with everything that Molly and Alan said, but I also want to say that like the institutional performance of this committee on this particular issue is remarkably good um, for a lot of reasons that Molly has talked about. Okay, we have uh, a written question. Uh, how corrective slash successful do you think the committee has been in identifying aberrant political behavior and preventing its normalization? Quinta, what do you think? Uh, if part of the goal of the committee is to enforce norms on the political culture, can we give them any credit for success? I think they've done an incredible job identifying them and calling them out. Um, And I really do give them an enormous amount of credit, not only in the investigative work that they've done, but in sort of building a theoretical structure around that um, and making the argument that, you know, these are extremely dangerous things that we've seen. Um, I think Liz Liz Cheney said today, uh, you know, this is not a situation where this danger has passed. This is, you know, January 6th very well could have gone in a much different, even uglier way than it did. um, And we may face this again. Um, And so I think that, you know, they, they have really been laser focused on making that point again and again. And I think they've done so extremely effectively. On the question of, you know, whether that will have any impact, I think that's a it's a much different and and harder question. There is some indication that the committee's work has changed how at least some Americans see what happened on the 6th. I know there's some polling that independence views have shifted toward holding Trump accountable for January 6th more since the committee started its work. That said, I mean, it's also true that the two Republicans who are on the panel will be out of a job uh, come the next Congress. Um, And we really see a political environment where Republicans who support election denialism, who support Trump, are on the rise. And Republicans who, like Cheney and Kinsinger, have opposed that are by far in the minority uh, in their party and have really been drummed out. And so I think it's a the the committee is certainly fighting the good fight. Um, I don't know if they're winning. Uh, we are going to leave it there. Quinta Jurassic, Alan Rosenstein, Molly Reynolds, thank you for joining us today. Have a good evening, everybody. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, and today it is produced in cooperation with the great Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Hey, folks, if you like these quick reaction debriefs with live audiences, uh, something really only Lawfare does, become a material supporter of Lawfare. You know, the only thing we are missing on our Patreon site is you. So go there, patreon.com slash Lawfare. You get all kinds of goodies, you get ad-free podcasts, and you get to support events like this one. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event. So give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view. An endless field of wildflowers. Or a sunset that needs no filter. 
Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.